are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with Tom Coyne, my co-host, uh, and uh, today we've got special guest Dave Starr from Vicious Rumors. Welcome, Dave. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you, Dave. Uh, I wanted to start from the beginning, like I usually do, with the guest that we have on, and if mm-hmm. you could tell us a little bit about how the band started and how you arrived on the name of the band. I, the naming of the band, um, to be honest with you, because uh, Jeff had a couple of different lineups together. Jeff Thorpe, the uh, the founding member of the band, had a couple of different lineups before uh, things got solidified. And I, to be honest with you, I don't really know how he came upon the band name, or I don't remember. He probably told me years ago. I just I just don't remember the. Uh, I do remember this. I remember when I heard the band name Vicious Rumors. I didn't think it was a cool name. I like the way it got shortened to VR, but Vicious Rumors kind of to me sounded like a new wave or a punk name, punk rock name. It, for whatever reason, it just didn't really grab me. But the band has kind of became known as VR uh, for short, and I always liked VR better than Vicious Rumors. But uh, the early days of the band um, were uh, I, I was playing in Laws Rocket at the time. This is '82, '83. And I saw Jeff playing a great club in San Francisco called the Old Waldorf. This was one of his earlier versions of BR before the, we did any of the albums. And I was uh, pretty impressed by by what I saw. They had some killer tunes, and they, I wish there was video footage of this, but it looks like they never got videotaped. Jeff used to be brought up out on stage in a coffin and carried by these monks and it was the most bizarre thing. And uh, he'd bust out of the coffin. There were dry ice all over the place. And it just, just shit would hit the fan, man. It was crazy. And I thought, wow, these, these, these dudes are insane. So um, I ended up introducing myself to Jeff and uh, just struck up a friendship. And to make a long story short, he went through some different lineup changes. And people were in and out of the band. And it just... He, we stayed in touch, and I think in sometime in '84 he called me up and he said that he was putting a new lineup together. I went up and auditioned, and uh, ended up being um, joining the band in late '84. And at that point, it was Jeff and Gary St. Pierre on vocals, and me on bass. And then uh, we had a drummer whose name escapes me. Played a couple of minor shows in up in northern california and then shortly thereafter we got uh larry howe in the band after i on drums after i'd been in the band about six months so that was kind of the foundation of the of what would become the uh you know the first album so that would be uh 85 when that when the four of us were playing together before vinnie moore ended up coming out 
And how did you get hooked up with Vinnie Moore? Well, Jeff had a tentative handshake deal with Mike Varney and Shrapnel Records to do uh, his standard album deal back then was two albums. And we um, needed another guitar player. Um, the songs were basically written for two guitars and uh, we, we needed to get a second guitar player. And Mike at the time was doing the Mike Varney spotlight in Guitar Player Magazine where he would people would submit cassette tapes of uh, uh, their playing and Mike would review and give them promotion in his uh, spotlight column in Guitar Player Magazine. So he got a tape from Vinnie Moore and he was really impressed with it. And he told Jeff, he said, hey, I got this cat out in Delaware, Vinnie Moore, and I think uh, this could be a, a good match up here. So basically Mike flew Vinnie out to do the record with us. And that was in, uh, I believe, the summer of 85. Things didn't, um, that's basically how it happened. Now, things kind of kind of went sour from there. Vinny was not really thrilled with the situation. And he uh, actually told Mike Varney he wanted to bail out on us. <laughs> and Mike said, no, you're going to stay put. You're going to finish the record. And then you can go back home to Delaware. So unbeknownst to us, while we were recording the album with Vinny, Vinny was really upset. He was away from home, really, for the first time. I think he was 18 or 19 at the time. This, he was homesick, and he didn't really like what was going on. He didn't like some of the material. I think he didn't really care for Gary's vocals, and I think he really wanted to be in a one-guitar band. He didn't really like sharing guitar duties with Jeff. So there was just there was some underlying friction that we didn't really know about. But uh, when we did the photo session for the Soldiers of the Night album, uh, Vinny said, uh, I'm going to fly home to Delaware and take care of some business and then I'll get on the first plane back out here. And we never saw the guy again. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of saw that one coming as you were telling me the story. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he kept it. I remember talking to him on the phone and he would keeping this lie up to me for, for reasons I don't really know. He kept saying, like, oh, yeah, I got got, got some things I got to take care of here, but uh, it'll probably be in the next couple of weeks, and then it was the next couple of months. And finally, he said, I'm not coming back. I don't want to come back out there. Um, I wasn't happy with the situation. So I, I think there was some, um, there was some bad, bad feelings on our part towards him because of the way that he handled it. And obviously, when you got your debut album coming out, the last thing you want to do is start losing band members. But uh, the bottom line is he was kind of never really in the band. He did the record with us, but he, he quit before the record even came out. So that was the situation with Vinny. So it was uh, I think there were some bad feelings for a while, but it's all, as they say, water under the bridge now. I think his his presence on the album he did a great i think he did a great job on the album uh, whether he wants to admit it or not and i think it the album helped him and i think it helped us because it uh, there was such a tremendous uh, young talent in Vinny's presence on the record so i think it was beneficial to both sides even though like i said a few minutes ago that it was an unfortunate situation where you got somebody who comes in and then basically quits behind your back before the record even comes out so but it's it is what it is and that is what i call a standalone album because that's the only album we did with Vinny and the only album that we did with gary st pierre singing right. it's a good record i think we ended up doing better as we moved forward but i think the record stands the test of time and i think it's uh i think it's a, a pretty good damn good record it, it is a good record uh I, 
personally, I, I felt the band really didn't have its signature sound yet because what was going to make the signature sound wasn't in the band yet. So uh, yeah. for what it was, mid-80s, power metal, street metal, whatever the terms were back then that, that it was called, it was a good record. And it definitely did help both parties because a lot of people used to, I remember back in the day when the record came out, a lot of people used to say, oh, you know, when Vinnie Moore's Mind's Eye record came out, it got a lot of attention. And it was a very common thing to say, well, he's in also in a band called Vicious Rumors. And I used to tell people, well, he's really not in that band anymore. They have a new, you know, a new yeah. lineup. And, and I think it helped you guys too that he had become kind of like one of those Tony McAlpine, Satriani, uh, guitar heroes. And his name was synonymous with Vicious Rumors. Yeah, I think that really rubbed him the wrong way when Mind's Eye came out, because when people were doing press for him, they would ask him about the VR album, right. Soldiers of the Night, and he, he just, he didn't even want to talk about it. And I remember there was a, it was an interview with him in Guitar Player or Guitar World where he said the Soldiers of the Night album, he didn't really want to talk about it. And I just remember this one line, it said he called it tasteless in a lot of ways. Hmm. And I think he's mellowed out since then because I talked to him all the time on Facebook. And, you know, I saw him at the NAMM show uh, a couple of years later after uh, I think when we got signed to Atlantic in 1990, we hooked up with him. That was the first time we saw him in 1990. So it's it's all, you know, it's 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 just one of those things. But everything's cool. It was a little little testy there maybe for a few years, but it's all it's all OK. Well, he's carved out a nice career for himself with UFO. Yeah. I mean, yeah. next to Schenker, he's now the most uh, identifiable guitar player they ever had. So He's had a great career, and uh, whether he likes it or not, it all started with, uh, th with VR. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so now I wanted to take you to the beginnings of what turned out to be the, the vintage period of the band. How did you guys get hooked up with Carl Albert? I know he had been in a lot of bands prior, Ruffians, Villain, a uh, band called Scratch. Uh, how did you first hear of him and how did you recruit him? Well, the, the situation with, uh, we, we hired a, a guitar player named Terry Montana, who was a, a friend of everybody's in the band. And he was a good guitar player, but it just just wasn't really working out. We did He did all the soldiers if you want to call them tour dates, although all we did was play around Northern California. Um, and it just wasn't really working out. And Gary was not working out. He, he had a lot of problems. Let's just leave it at that. Um, and uh, he was kind of checked out mentally. We just, the band was just kind of dead in the water and uh, we needed to do something. And basically Nothing was getting done, and I took the bull by the horns, basically, and, and made the decision to to get a new singer. I told Jeff, I said, you know, this is just, which is kind of a little odd because Jeff was the founding member of the band, and you you would think that uh, everything would go through him or he would make the decisions. But I just said, Jeff, I'm going to deal with this. Carl, I don't remember. Somebody referred me to you. Got to check out this guy, Carl Albert. And I don't remember who it was, but I saw him play at this little club in San Francisco called Mbubu Hay Gardens. I went to go scope him out and uh, I was blown away. Uh, this was when he was in Villain and the Villain EP had just come out and the band was good, but Carl stood out as just a real diamond in the rough. You know, the band was cool. I, I can't say anything bad about the band, but I saw this amazing singer that I just felt like I needed to grab this guy and do whatever it took to, to get him into VR. And I 
flagged him down after the show and introduced myself. And he, you know, we laughed about this later, but he kind of thought I was a real weirdo pestering him. And I said, look, I'm just going to give you my phone number. I, I play bass in VR. We've got this record deal. Uh, I'd really like to talk to you about doing some stuff together. And he was just blowing me off. And I thought I would uh, never hear from the guy again. But uh, I guess he gave me his phone number because I remember calling him and I said, look, just give me your address. I'll send you a promo package. I'll send you the, the Soldiers album and a bunch of press from Europe. And if you like the stuff, fine. If you don't, hell, throw the shit away, man, whatever. But just give me this chance. to." And so he gave me his address and I sent him a promo package. And a couple of weeks go by and he called me up and he said, just out of the blue, he goes, I want to join the band. I didn't know what was going on with Villain, and maybe he wasn't happy with the situation, or he just realized this was a step up, a major step up. But he came down. I don't really know if you'd want to call it an audition because we just we didn't audition any other singers. Is basically he came down and did a bunch of the Soldiers of the Night material, and we were just we were sold, and that's how the whole thing happened with Carl, and actually backing up slightly maybe a month or so is when we realized that Terry Montana wasn't going to work out. I was friends with Mark McGee and we were both from the same town, Alameda, California. And he was, he'd played in some metal bands, hard rock bands. And I, I knew him and I thought he was a really good guitar player and a really nice guy. And uh, I remember striking up a conversation with him one day saying, you know, it looks like the situation with Terry isn't working out. Um, would you be interested? And he came down and played with us and uh it was just magic and he was really young then he was probably only geez maybe 18 or 19 but he was way beyond his years in terms of talent and ability and he had flashes of that kind of vitty more um neoclassical virtuosity uh as well as just he marks marks i'll flat out say this he's the best musician i've ever played with he knows like every song ever written by everybody <laughs> he's got got the most amazing catalog up in his brain of every riff and every lick and he's just a really well-rounded writer and guitar player and and the, the, the weird thing about mark joining the band was technically when he came down and joined gary was still in the band and he came down and he sang and he played while at rehearsal while we still had gary in the band and Mark, I remember taking me aside going, are you telling me you're really going to get rid of Gary? Because I don't really think this is going to work out for me. And I told him, I said, look, just hang tight. I got this guy, Carl Albert, I'm dealing with. And I think it's all going to I'm going to make this work somehow. And it was kind of an awkward situation because we knew that Gary was on his way out as well. But we kept our mouth shut, obviously, about it until we had all of our ducks in a row. So Mark joined and technically, he was in the band with Gary for a couple of weeks. And then Carl came down and solidified the new lineup. And I told Jeff, I said, you go way back with Gary. So why don't you take care of Gary and I'll go take care of Terry. And those guys got their walking papers. And the classic lineup was, was basically born. And that was sometime in early 86, probably. Early, yeah, early 86. So the guillotine was dropped on on two members and Enter McGee and Carl Welby. Yeah, and I felt really bad about Terry because uh, I remember I, I remember I rode my motorcycle over to his house and I said, "Hey, I got to sit down and talk about something." I left there in tears. I felt really like I felt like crap. 
Terry was a really good, a really good guy. I'm still friends with him. He, it just wasn't working out for a multitude of reasons. And Mike Varney uh, said to me, I remember he said, how are things going with Terry? And I said, oh, they're going okay. And he said, Mike Varney said, I'm telling you, Dave, if you guys don't give me demos that blow me away, as you did with the Soldiers of Night material, he said, I'm not putting out a second album for you guys. I'm going to drop you. It was it was a difficult it was a difficult situation. So yeah, you you're back the against right, the wall to a degree. Yeah, I mean the 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 threat from Mike Varney, and I'm not I should maybe use the word threat, maybe coercion or friendly advice. From <laughs> the, the or or it's a business. <laughs> yeah, and he just said he just said, look, I know Terry, I know what he's capable of, but if you guys don't blow me away with demos for the new material, I'm not going to do another record with you. So that's, you know, when you hear that from the head of the record label, that's uh, pretty, pretty scary. You know, it's like, what do we do here? So we we had, a, I think the t- situation with Terry was harder to deal with than Gary, because Gary had a lot of problems at that time that were, I don't want to really bag on the guy, but they were just impeding his ability to function. Right. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. And. Gary had done uh, one of the U.S. metal tracks with uh, Jeff on those compilation albums that came out a few years. Uh, I think that was in 84. He did a track called Ultimate Death. Oh, wait a minute. No, that wasn't Ultimate Death. I think it was One Way Ticket was the track. Ultimate Death was, was the the previous lineup of the guys who I told you that I saw at the Old Waldorf. So on the compilation albums, there was a song called Ultimate Death. On U.S. Metal 3, I think, it came out in 83. And then in 84, there was U.S. Metal 4 compilation. And I think the track was called One Way Ticket. And Gary sang on that. So we didn't actually do any recording with Gary, official, uh, excuse me, with Terry Montana on guitar. So um, I think it was a little tougher for Jeff to say goodbye to Gary uh, because there was at least some recording that had been done and plus the Soldiers of the Night album. So right. and it was just a difficult situation all around. But I think I made the right call by bringing Carl and Mark in, and, and I think the results speak for themselves on the next couple of records. Yeah, the results uh, definitely do speak for themselves. Uh, you actually, in my opinion, just my opinion, you secured one of, I would say, one of the top four or five singers of, of that generation in, in Carl. Mark McGee, what could you say? This is a guy that uh, landed the Greg Allman gig. So, I mean, that kind, yeah. of, that kind of speaks volumes right there. Uh, if you take us a little bit through the recording of that album, some of my all-time favorite Vicious Rumors songs are on that album. So, uh, if you could just take us through how that went. On the Digital Dictator album? Yes. Yeah, I think we recorded that the summer of, oh, geez, when was it? 87, I think, summer of 87. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, there was a lot of energy. Carl and Mark brought, you know, a new level of, of energy into the band. And, and we, we started writing a bunch of new material. I had some songs and Mark had some ideas and it was just, it was a pretty exciting time for the band, for all four of us, uh, five, excuse me, five of us. And, uh, we recorded that at Prairie Sun Studios up in Katati, California, which is where Mike did most of his, uh, shrapnel recordings. A lot of people don't know we had really, really tight time constraints on those shrapnel records, um, which uh, 
shocked the hell probably out of some people. We had Mike had pretty much a strict one hound one hundred hour budget for recording time. That's for everything. And uh, I think we did on Soldiers of the Night. I think we did a hundred and eight. We went over eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> and on Digital Dictator, I think it was a hundred and sixteen hours. So that's a pretty pretty bam bam. Let's get you gotta. You got to get in there. When you were doing records for Mike Varney, you had to know what you were doing when you went in there. You couldn't go in there and waste time and, and experiment. You basically had to get in there with your shit together and uh, perform flawlessly to get it, get everything done, get 10 tracks done in, in 100 hours, because that's not a lot of time to do a, to do a record. Yeah, that's crazy. But, but, wow. we, but we did them. You know, I think it was actually kind of good because I think a lot of bands go into the studio and they're just not really prepared and they waste time and they waste money. You didn't have the luxury of doing that when you were recording for Shrapnel Records. You had to go in there prepared and get and have your shit together, which which we did. And I think the records sound pretty good. Obviously, I think the stuff on Atlantic sounds a little bit better, a little bit better studio, more money, better production values. But uh, I think the Shrapnel Records stand out. And all these years later, uh, 35 years or so, um, they still stand the test of time. And I've got people who tell me they still listen to that stuff to this day. But there's definitely a, a, um, a strong vibe in the studio. I, whether or not we, you know, it's funny when you look back on, you, you do these records and you look back on them over the passage of time. And we weren't really thinking we were doing anything magical. We were just five guys in the studio trying to make some rock and roll and you don't think beyond next week or next month, but it just blows my mind that people here in 2022 say they still listen to those records to this day. Well, you're talking to one of them. (laughs) Yeah. And that they, and that they mean something to them where I'm the same way with it. I I don't, I'm the same way when I'm listening to Judas Priest or Thin Lizzy or Blue Oyster Cult or Kiss or or any of the other stuff that I influenced me as a, as a musician and I'll listen to an old Judas Priest track and I'll go, God, that reminds me of 1980 uh, doing this and that. And uh, I'll listen to Blue Oyster Cult and it'll remind me of something. And people will say like, oh, you know, when I listen to Digital Dictator, it takes me back to this special time in my life. And it's just it's really mind blowing to hear people say stuff like that and to say that they still listen to the stuff some some on a daily basis. It's just it's really rewarding to hear people to, to know that you made some music that really made an impact on people's lives. Well, I, I know for myself personally, and I'm I'm old enough. You you mentioned Blue Oyster Cult. I bought their first record when it came out, so that's yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> uh, Mark's a lot younger than me, but um, well, I'm I, sixty now. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm I just turned sixty three. Mark is fifty one. Yeah. Okay. So he's he's a bit younger than we are. Um, I had such an uh, uh, an attachment to to Vicious Rumors and a few other bands. Oddly enough, we're all California bands for the most part. Um, Lizzie mm-hmm. Borden, Leatherwolf, uh, Vicious Rumors, those, those bands I, I thought kind of stood out a little bit ahead and shoulders of, of everybody oh, else, God. especially a lot of the East Coast bands. But when I got turned on to you guys, when Carl and, and uh, McGee had come on board, uh, I, I had a tremendous attachment to the songs, the 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 energy, uh, the gang vocals. I, you guys had such a unique sound, and still do. Like that that original band or the, or the classic lineup. I don't think there's ever been a band that has really replicated that sound. 
And that's very unique. And I think that's why to this day, having networked with a lot of fans over the years, people have such an attachment to the the unique sound of the band and, of course, Carl's vocals. Yeah, Carl was kind of like the... Um, my favorite singer probably of, of all time was uh, in terms of uh, the metal singers. Uh, and when I say metal singers, like... Bruce Dickinson, Rob Halford, Jeff Tate, uh, those kind of guys. Carl was the closest to what I felt was that kind of realm. And so Judas Priest was sort of my ultimate band. And I thought that Carl kind of at a cross between maybe Dio and Rob Halford. Yeah, that's what I always thought too. A little, a, and, a little bit of the guy in Man of War too, Eric Adams on and, some songs. And on the guitar front, I love the interplay between KK and Glenn. And I thought, God, because Mark has such a vast, different background than Jeff does. Jeff was really into the uh, Hendrix and Sabbath and uh, some of the su super heavy, crazy shit, you know, with the vibrato bar. And uh, Mark came from almost a more progressive background where he was... He was influenced by Kiss, but he's he got into Yes and Heart, and he just had kind of a well more well-rounded catalog of influences, and that was great because it made a difference in that. It's like the worst thing you want to do is hear, go see a band and both guitar players sound exactly the same, playing all this mindless arpeggios right. and sweeps and shit that I I I just puts your shit puts you to sleep. And you hear, you know, like you hear Glenn and KK, a serious fan knows the difference between each guitar player. And you listen to VR and I can go, that's Mark and that's Jeff. You can tell them apart, but yet they come together to create this, this great energy. And that's, I mean, I was really, I mean, I've said this a million times and I'll say it again. I'm really proud for bringing Carl and Mark into the band because it really made it, made VR what it was. Undoubtedly, because... It was an era where you could get very much mixed up with a lot of other. There were so many bands at that time. It was such a rich era of talent. But I, I really feel Carl's vocals set set you guys kind of apart. And you did have a signature sound. At, at, at least on the second album that you were developing, at least in my opinion, you, what you yeah. became your signature sound. And I think it was even more accentuated on the next album when you went uh, to the to the major label. So if you could tell us about that a little bit. It was interesting because when we finished the two-album deal, I think after we got signed to Shrapnel, shortly thereafter, Mike changed everything to a four-album deal for all the bands that got signed after us. So we kind of escaped that, not, not being negative towards Mike, but I think it was beneficial for us not to be held back to a smaller label because it gave us the opportunity to get signed to a big label, which is what ended up happening. So the way the thing with Atlantic came about was, and I played a major part in this as well, <laughs> I booked the band to play with Paul Stanley when I found out that Paul Stanley was doing this club solo tour in 89. And the local club, the big venue in the Bay Area was called the Omni in Oakland. We played there all the time. And I went and when I found out that Paul was doing this club tour, I just I called up the booking agent there and I said, I got to get on the show with Paul Stanley. And 
basically I twisted their arm. I, I think I, I just, I, the right place at the right time. I called probably before every other band did. And I make a long story short, I got us on the bill support act. I think there was maybe one band in front of us and then it was VR, then Paul Stanley and unbeknownst to us, I mean, I just wanted to play the show because I was a big Kiss fan and I wanted to meet Paul Stanley, which I did meet. And he was a great guy. He was so nice uh, hanging out with him backstage in the dressing room. I was like literally shaking in my boots. Hmm. And unbeknownst to us, there was a guy named Bob Zemsky who was in the crowd who co-managed Sabotage. And Sabotage was on Atlantic. And Bob Zemsky was best friends with Jason Flom, who was running the metal department at Atlantic Records. So Bob saw us and was blown away and called Jason Flom back in New York and said, hey, I just saw this great band out here in California called Vicious Rumors, and I think you guys should sign them. So that's how we ended up getting signed to, uh, to Atlantic Records, courtesy of Bob Zemsky seeing us uh, play with Paul Stanley uh, at the Omni in Oakland in 1989. And he called Jason Flom at Atlantic said, hey, there's this hot band. You guys got to get on it. So that's how the deal with Atlantic ended up coming about which was very f fortunate for us because we just weren't getting a lot of bites. I think Elliot, I think at the time, Elliot Kahn and Jeff Salzman, who were managing Testament, were, were helping us out and shopping um, our demo tapes. And we were just getting turned down by everybody until this thing with Atlantic came about. It basically saved us because I don't know what, what we were going to do um, if the Atlantic deal didn't come around. And uh, so they wanted us for literally for 10 albums. They wanted to sign us to a 10 album long term deal. Elliot Kahn and Jeff Salzman neg negotiated the uh, uh, record deal and we got it down to seven. And we lasted three albums on the uh, on the label. But uh, it is what it is. But, yeah, the Atlantic thing opened up a lot of doors for us, uh, got us on MTV, got us in print ads and all the major magazines, got us to tour Europe and uh, the U.S. and Japan, and so it, was, it just it opened up a lot of doors. It didn't go gangbusters like we were hoping for. The late uh, Malcolm Dome, who just passed away last year, um, did a promotional sticker for that first Atlantic record, said, the metal album that will define the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Malcolm Dome carried a lot of weight, and but Things were starting, you know, things were starting to change in the uh, in the, the music business right around that time. A lot of people look back on it and say, you know, if you guys would have got signed to Atlantic in 86 or 87 or 85 or something, it could have been a world of difference. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, but it opened up a lot of doors for us at the time. And, of course, when you get signed to a major label deal, um, we're all on cloud nine. We're all thinking... You know, we're going to get huge. We're going to be the next Judas Priest, uh, blah, blah, blah. But Atlantic didn't really sink a lot of money into us. And we couldn't get any, um, at least in the U.S., we couldn't get any support slots on any big tours. And we just ended up doing doing cl headlining club tours in the U.S. with minimum promotion from Atlantic. And, uh, you know, we did a lot, of, a lot of shows. We were playing to, you know, 100, 150 people. 50 people some nights you know it was just it was a tough tough road but when we went to europe we were playing huge venues with uh this is a support act for death angel in 1990 and we were playing to 
you know, 500, 1,000, 1,500 people every night. It was crazy. It's like night and day. Well, the scene back then in the States was very regional. Um, I remember myself, I used to go to the uh, Wilmore's, which was in, in, in Brooklyn, 10, 15 minutes from where I grew up. But I used to also venture into the city uh, to the Cat Club, which used to put on a lot of the more a lot of the West Coast bands when they were in the area would play there. And you'd go to Lemoore's and see maybe like a a local band that was wasn't even signed that would pack the place. You go to the Cat Club, see you guys. I, I saw uh, a Leather Wolf there. I saw Lizzie Borden. Club would be half empty because yeah. a lot of the East Coast people just really weren't in tune with the West Coast bands, at least as much as I was for that matter. So it, it was, I found the States at that time, things were very regional where I, then you'd see bands like yourself, you go out of, out of the country or even to Japan and get like a hero's welcome. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. It was, uh, it was tough touring in the U S we did three U S tours, 90, 91, uh, and 93. And they were all a real tough grind. A lot of the shows were not real well attended. A lot of people just, uh, you know, didn't know we were out there because it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of resources to break a band in the U.S. because uh, the country is so huge. And like you said, it's it's regional, and I think people are finicky. And whereas in Europe, uh, it's practically religion. Yes. And uh, they got people going to shows every night, uh, traveling all around the continent. And I think in the U.S., people are a little more, you know, blasé about everything. You know, they're folding their hand, arms and saying, well, you know, who are these guys? Why should I go see them? It's hard. It's it's very hard to generate a buzz in a country of 330 million people. It's 3,000 miles across right. from coast to coast. You know, I, I've, I, I saw so many shows in, in the 80s, 70s, and I, I've talked to, uh, about it with uh, with Mark also. Three of the best shows I ever saw were at the Cat Club, one of which was your band, Lizzie Borden and Leatherwolf. And I remember all three shows, club was probably half empty, you know. And yeah. um, then you'd see these other bands that were more New York, Jersey, Philly area, and they drew really well. The, the other thing I, I wanted to point out to see if you, you agree with me or you may totally disagree with me but I, I always felt is just by trying to turn people onto the band back in the day i think your sound was so unique that when i used to try to push it on some of my friends they thought it was too heavy they say oh yeah the singer's really good it's a little too heavy and hmm. it's it was probably the single was so good it, it wouldn't attract the guys that were into the real heavy thrash type of stuff because that vocal is is not prevalent in that so it had like the it had like a tremendous amount of balls and speed at times but you also had this singer that kind of fit more in that traditional classic 80s metal uh vein so i think it really took a lot of listening for for somebody to really digest everything that was going on in the band well it was real fashionable at the time uh thrash was real fashionable at that time yes we were never a thrash band. We right. played heavy stuff, but so did Judas Priest, you know, and 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 uh, we had songs that were like, you know, in the vein of, uh, I don't know, Painkiller, but with real, real singing and right. harmony cars. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people kind of, I think, maybe at that time thought that was becoming passe. But 
we didn't want to jump on any bandwagons. We wanted to play the music that we wanted to play, which was in that vein of Creased, Queensryche, Maiden, Dio, you know, whatever, whatever. The, those are the ones that come to come to mind. And we just felt like, hey, if it works, fine. But we're not going to jump on the thrash bandwagon and be something that we're we're not real, not really to have our heart in. Right, and it would have prostituted calls vocals, you know. Too, I mean, you really want to accentuate that guy for what he was uh, instead of trying to sound like a, a two-bit thrash band just to fit in. Yeah. But, I mean, you yeah. take that last record that we were just talking about, and you could have the speed and, and heaviness of, of Hellraiser and then a song like Ship of Fools, which is really like a, a very melodic hard rock song. Like, you know, two different... It's There's a lot... There was. A, I always tell people, you had to listen to these guys to really absorb everything that was going on. You can't give it like a, a cursory quick listen to two or three songs and say, oh, it's too heavy or it's, oh, it's too this. You really had to listen to the whole album and to absorb all the different um, plateaus and different tones of, of the songs. It was really well-constructed, thought-out music that, oh, God, maybe it went over some people's heads. <laughs> no, I've always maintained that. That's what I said a few minutes ago. I really felt with my own personal friends. You know, I hung out in the record store um, that my friend owned back in the day that was a very popular record store. And I knew it was a tough sell with some of my friends. They thought it was too heavy. They would say to me, oh, you know, the sing- singer's really good. It's really heavy, though. Well, look at a band like Sabotage. I mean, here was another band, and and you talked about, you know, and I've always thought with Sabotage, it's like kind of a a light and dark thing, right? You get the the songs that are a little more melodic, a little more maybe, I don't want to say mellow, but then you have the real heavy, crunchy stuff too. So it's like there's that's what I kind of compare Vicious Rumors to in my mind in their sound. It was cool. We actually, we did a tour with them in Europe in 91. They were doing the Streets album, and we were doing Welcome to the Ball, and it was an amazing double bill. That was just such a great time. We were in Europe for, I don't know, probably a month together. And it was just sold out every night. And the fans were just blown away. They were saying, this is the best combination of two bands we could ever hope for. It was almost like a co-headline. Well, it really was because that was, in my opinion, the pinnacle of both bands. I think both bands after that started to fray a, a little bit in terms of direction and and whatnot but if you look at it 91 was probably the ultimate pinnacle of sabotage and vicious rumors unfortunately shortly after that we had people dying and people getting fired and people quitting and nothing good lasts forever with that we go into the next album welcome to the ball if you could tell us a little bit about the the making of that well the the atlantic debut which was just called vicious rumors um Welcome to the Ball. Uh, we're both recorded at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California, with Michael Rosen producing. And uh, more money, bigger budget, uh, bigger, better studio. Of course, we didn't have a lot of money from Atlantic Records, but the little money that we had was a lot more money than what we had at Travel. Plus, it was a better recording studio, so the albums definitely sound better. I don't listen to the, to the music I've made. For, I don't listen to stuff I've recorded very often, but... Every now and then I'll listen back to those first two Atlantic records and I'll go, damn, these records sound pretty good. And they, they stand the test of time and they still sound crystal clear. Yeah, they've dated really well. Incredibly It was well. definitely a big step up in production going from uh, the shrapnel to Atlantic. I mean, I don't know what it is. Some of that shrapnel stuff sounds a little gritty. Gritty and a little tinny in spots. It lacked, um, I mean, your, your bass runs you could hear, but they weren't fat. 
the yeah. uh, the Atlantic stuff. Uh, you you and Howe had a, had a much bigger, fatter bottom end, which I, I personally it, like. It's a lot clearer. Uh, the production just sounded a lot cleaner. Yeah, and uh, so it was really cool. And like I said, we were on you know doing those records, those first two Atlantic records. We were really on cloud nine. Recording to the the, uh, the Welcome to the Ball album was uh, it was a really special time, you know that that those two records being just being on Atlantic was such a, such a, such a rush. Although I think by the time Welcome to the Ball came out, we started seeing some cracks starting to appear that you know because we did the the U.S. we did the we already had one Atlantic record under our belt and we realized that things were not going as well as we had dreamed and hoped that they would be we got signed to atlantic and we became a, a a small fish in a giant pond or giant sea you know atlantic at the time had phil collins rush and heavier bands like skid row which was doing skid row was doing really well with those first couple of albums so you know it was kind of the trickle down thing but you know we kind of made a pact that hey we may not last forever. We, they signed us to a seven album deal, but we may not last seven albums, but let's just put our heart and soul into it. Cause we're here and we play every show. Like we're playing to 10,000 people, even though we may only be paying to 20 or 50. So we just, you know, we, we acted like, uh, this is our, our last stand. I think the welcome to the ball album turned out, turned out really good. I think it was a s- slight step up from the, the, the previous one, some killer songs on it. One of the things that kind of took place when we got signed to his Atlantic is what I look back at and I regret on a little bit is that I kind of got pushed out of the songwriting part of the band. I wrote, I co-wrote songs on the first two albums. And then when Mark and Carl came on board and things started with Atlantic, um, they kind of became the Tipton Downing Halford <laughs> three piece songwriting team, Carl Albert. Jeff Thorpe and Mark McGee, and I kind of got pushed inside. So it kind of frustrated me a little bit. So I didn't really write anything on those two albums, but I still think overall the albums were really good. I was submitting songs, but they were getting rejected and uh, I riffs and ideas, and they just were never getting incorporated. And I got really frustrated, but I still think overall that the, the uh, I, I hung on to a lot of my songwriting ideas and ended up using using them in the future with <laughs> with Wildstar. <laughs> And people tell me how great the songs are. And I'll say, well, you know what? The story of that riff. Right. I've been sitting on it for 30 years. (laughs) Yeah. that Apparently they weren't good enough for VR, but it's okay. You know, I mean, maybe I should have pushed harder to get my ideas across. But um, on the Welcome to the Ball, one of my favorite songs is uh, Savior from Anger. Raise Your Hands, You Only Live Twice. Uh, Strange Behavior is Killer. Yeah. And that's a pretty solid our only mistake, I think, on that record was doing the uh, because on the first Atlantic we did "Don't Wait for Me," which was a slam and co- uh, kick-ass, high-tempo high energy song for the uh, M- uh, Headbangers Ball for the MTV video, which which people really loved. But then for "Welcome to the Ball," I think we made a mistake doing the the uh, the song "Children," even though it's a great song. It's a great song. It's a great song, and it has it's a really powerful. Uh, lyrical message about children being the inheritors of, of the world that you live leave them. But I think it kind of maybe put the wrong, it would have been better as a second video, let's say that, or a third video. But I think we should have done a more up-tempo slam and song. And I think that video ended up hurting us more than helping us because people thought like, 
well, this is kind of like a, uh, a lighter sounding tune, which it was. But in hindsight, I think it was a mistake to release that as a video track. But, you know, what's done is done. So that led into the next album, uh, which was word of mouth. Now, at th- that point, did you did you leave in between the recordings of those albums? Well, actually, the actually the next album was the Live in Tokyo. The Live in Tokyo, right? I, I right. That's plug in and hang on. Yeah, which was recorded at the end of the Welcome to the Ball Tour Atlantic sent right. to Japan for a week, and we did shows in Tokyo and Osaka. And that's probably my least favorite album. Um, we did two nights sold out in Tokyo and they recorded the second night, but we played better on the first night and they did very little overdubs or fixes. It's really a live album. Yeah, it is. That, no which is fine. I, I actually like that sometimes. It was, it was a great, great week that we spent in Japan. And then we came back and we were starting to write material for the next studio album. And then uh, we did one more, um, we got, ended up getting dropped from Atlantic, which we kind of all knew was going to happen. We weren't selling enough records. They were losing money on us, uh, poor promotion, and also the whole grunge thing started taking off. So the handwriting was kind of on the wall. It was those things. It was grunge. It was lack of promotion and lack of record sales. We were starting over from scratch. And in 93, we did one more. We started doing demos in 92. And we did one more U.S. tour in 93, which is the last tour that I did. It was the last tour the five of us did. Um, I think it was the summer of 93. And uh, I was really excited about the record. Um, there was some really good songs. And I wrote a song with Jeff called My Machine. I wrote all the guitar parts for it. And Jeff wrote the lyrics. And we were both really excited about the song. And uh, in we were doing shows around the Bay Area demoing some of the new material from the welcome to the ball album uh, we played them on the u.s tour dates people were loving the tracks along the same time i was going through some personal hell with my marriage to my wife at the time uh, who was having a lot of substance abuse problems and it was just screwing up my marriage and screwing up my life and I was going through some really, really tough times. And Jeff was really concerned about it. And he basically said, um, I need you to come down to the studio and talk to the guys uh, and explain to everybody what's going on. So I explained to him what's going on. And I, and I told him I really needed the support of the band and um, that the band was one of the things that was keeping me alive been me going because uh, my marriage was falling apart and they all gave me a vote of confidence said we're going to do whatever we can to help you out and get through this so i was basically in tears and i thanked everybody in the band and i said you guys are you know my extended family and two weeks later they fired me from the band oh wow yep and that's how it happened i think it was on jeff's birthday in 1993 it's oh it's very easy for me to remember Jeff's birthday because it was the day him and Mark walked into the guitar repair shop that I worked at um, and told me I was I was out of the band. I was just devastated. That's that's very interesting. I I uh, obviously didn't know that. And um, what's what's odd about that is the record itself that came <clears throat> after you had had left. I, I as a fan found it to be a, a very spotty record. I I. I thought it was the beginning of the band losing its sound. I don't know whether it was attributed to, to, to that 
classic lineup not being together anymore, the change of the times. There were there were elements of, of alternative grunge in some of the songs. There were elements of what I heard, Metallica and Anthrax, uh, two bands I'm not a personal fan of. There, there were a couple of good songs on it. I liked the song The Voice a lot. But I, I just felt on that album, even though Carl sang really well, what I loved about the three albums before it uh, seemed to be quickly dissipating. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I've never heard the record. I've never heard anything the band did after I left. But I know some of the songs. I remember uh, there was a really good song called Building Number Six. Yes. Thinking of You. Building Number Six was an interesting tune. That was a song that Jeff wrote about a documentary about a, uh, a a mental institution in oh god what was the name of that place it was an expose that Geraldo Rivera oh did. Uh, Willowbrook Willowbrook yes and they even mentioned Willowbrook in the song and I thought that was an amazing tune and then when the internet came about years later uh, I, I actually looked up the Geraldo Rivera thing I found it on YouTube and I go fuck man this is crazy. Um, so I really like that song a lot, but, um, I did the demos for the album. Um, there's some demos floating around, I think on the internet where you, you'll find the stuck with me playing bass, uh, where we recorded the demos at Neil Sean's studio in Oakland, California sometime in 93. So that's as far as I got with the record, but I was definitely, Jeff tells everybody that I wasn't into it. You know, Jeff makes up stories to make himself look like less of a schmuck that's the way i look at it but it was basically i got i got screwed over and i think jeff was just going through some kind of inner turmoil where he was really bitter about getting dropped from atlantic he was generally unhappy um and he used me basically as a scapegoat like it was my fault <laughs> and he's to this day he just tells everybody that that i was losing interest in the band and and this and that none of that was true well, it was, as far as I was concerned, it was the beginning of the end on many fronts. Certainly, we, we all know what happened to Call. That was not too far down the pike. And then his resurfacing um, of, of the band with the new singer and the new lineup was, uh, I thought, was, was atrocious. I mean, there was a period of time well, he sang, which, yeah, well, which was god-awful. If you look at it like this, okay, if, if I died in a car accident in 1993 and the band went on without me, I would say that would have probably turned out cool. But the, the, the fact is, I got fired from the band for no reason. And then a little over a year later, Carl was dead and Mark quit right about the same time. So you lose three guys out of the five members from the classic lineup. How do you expect it to go on from there? It's a sham. And, I mean, that's and how it is. To this, and now I've never listened to any of the records that Jeff's done since I left the band except for the Warball CD that I came back to do in 2006. That's a whole other story. But um, I've never read any reviews that have said, gee, the band is better without Dave, Carl, and Mark. No, no. <laughs> the, the, I band, mean... the band is actually better than the classic lineup. The best I've ever heard was that people say the records are good, but they're nothing compared to what the classic lineup. Did. Yeah, they're not. I, I mean, personally, I, 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 I've thought they've consistently lacked songwriting. They've lacked front men. Like I said, there was a period of time he sang. Um, I, I've seen numerous videos on YouTube with different lineups. There's one lineup he had at one time where the guys in the band looked like they, they were his son's age. 
I, I, I just been very unaccepting of it. And I'm a type of guy, ever since I was a kid and I got into this music, there are certain guys in bands you could replace. There are certain guys in bands you can't replace. And if you choose to continue on with that, with that band without that guy, well, it's on you. You may be making money off of that name, but me as a fan am entitled to have my opinion of it. And, and my opinion was the band should have been put down or at least a name change when, when Carl passed away. Yeah, I, I, that's not the first time I've heard that. Yeah, I mean, it's just a shame. You know, I, 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 if, if the five of us would have stayed together and been the tight-knit group that we were for that run, you know, we could have put out who knows who knows what we could have done. But, you know, Jeff and Mark torpedoed that. And, you know, what's weird is that Mark and Jeff fired me from the band. And Mark, obviously, if he was going to leave a year later, he must have already been having thoughts about exiting the band. So if he's thinking, if he's already starting having doubts about staying in the band, why does he get, why does he want to get rid of me? If he's already got a foot out the door, I mean, it's just stupid. It's a lot of stupid shit that went on. Right. Well, on a cheerier note, we wanted to shift things to your current outfit, which uh, uh, we've we've listened to a lot. And uh, Mark had some questions about your uh, your current band that he wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, definitely. Um, now I know you know obviously you're the bass player from Vicious Rumors. Everybody knows that, but uh, I guess it was around 2005 or so you uh, you kind of started playing guitar. Yeah, I got um, I got clean and sober in 2005, and part of my rehab was. Uh, I just delved really deeply into the guitar uh, hours and hours and hours every day. And I got really good really fast and kind of made a, I mean, it's very strange, but not strange, but it's very uncommon or maybe unheard of for somebody at age 44 to be shifting gears like that. And that's how old I was at the time. Um, but I wanted to, um, London and I, my wife had been married for about four or five years by then. And we talked about doing some stuff together, her being, a, uh, wanting to sing. And, uh, the first thing we did was we worked on that. I played bass on the Chastain in and out age album that came out. And I don't know when that was, she, she had engineered the bass tracks for me. So that was the first time that we worked together, but we started working on stuff after that, uh, writing songs. And it was about that time that I, uh, went back to VR to do the Warball CD, but I just, I just wasn't into it. There was no Carl and Mark wasn't there. And I just said, through this, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to go back, back to the past. So I quit VR, just started working on the band that would become Wildstar, which was my wife and I. And by the time we entered the studio to record the first album in 2008, which was the Arrival CD, I'd only been playing guitar for a couple of years, but if you listen to that record, it doesn't sound like it. It's it's almost like uh, some kind of supernatural or divine intervention that saved my life from my substance abuse problems and enabled me to get really good really fast on the guitar. And I, and I said to myself, and I told London, I said, you know, if we do something, I want to do it. I want to do something that's as good as VR or better, if not better, or what's the point in doing it? Because everybody's going to compare what I did, what I'm doing now to what I did in the past. Sure. So I don't want to say, I don't want people to be saying like, well, you know, his glory days were in VR and that was the best. But I'll put anything that London and I have done in Wildstar up against anything that I've done in VR. And I think it's as, it's, 
at the very least on the same level. Yeah. And well, now you, you said that you had songs that you had submitted to VR that, you know, were never used. So you said before that you kind of did use some of this material for Wildstar, right? Yeah. I just, I, I played guitar a little bit back then, but never, I mean, it was enough to bang out chords and show Jeff and Mark my ideas, but never to the level that I was able to play at with, with Wildstar. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing how the whole thing came together. And London had just been this hidden gem. You just never really got the opportunity in bands and the exposure that she really was deserving of until we decided to start doing stuff together. And I didn't really know how great of a singer she was. Yeah. So she had never sang in any bands prior. Not that anybody had really ever heard. And then I'm like, my God, this, this sounds like a female Rob Halford. This is fucking insane. Um, yeah, we Arrival came out in 2009, and we basically just kept it a studio project. We originally were going to put a, a full band together and tour and stuff, but it just we had a hard time finding people to, to play with us. And I told London, I said, you know what, let's just keep this a studio thing. And I ended up playing all the guitars and bass on all the albums that we've done. We've done three now. We did Arrival. Uh, Telltale Heart came out in 2012, and then 2017 we did... Um, uh, oh geez beyond, beyond the rain <laughs> and uh i've played all the guitars and bass myself on all three of the albums the only thing we did london and i didn't do was we had a, a guy named josh foster do who's back in in california we're out in texas now we've been out in tech in the houston area for seven and a half years but josh has done the drums for us and so we just kept, kept it a studio project we got a little boost we hooked up with chip ruggieri who's a publicist for judas priest uh, a friend of a friend gave the arrival CD to him and he fell in love with it. And we got ended up hooking up with him. So he helped us out with a lot of promo stuff. So um, it's kind of been an uphill climb getting recognition because we don't tour and it's really tough to get uh, exposure when you don't tour. Um, but we've just, we, we both kind of like the domestic life and, we started several businesses out here in Texas. Uh, we started real estate, investing in real estate in the stock market. And I started a company called Star Guitar Systems four years ago, where I build upgrade electronics for guitar and bass. And that thing has just taken off like, like a rocket. So we've got all these business interests here that we keep us anchored. Um, so it, it would be really tough for us to tour, but I don't really regret it because I'm just happy working in the studio, making music. And I think we've made some really phenomenal tunes. I always look back on the stuff I did with VR with until the very end. I always look at it with very fond memories. And I got to tour the world two or three times. It was really cool, a lot of fun. We made some great music, but I'm at this second half of my life um, doing the stuff with London has has been the the favorite of all the music I've made in my career. This is the best stuff that I've ever done, in my opinion. That's really cool. So, is there? I mean, two thousand. You said two thousand and seventeen was uh, the Beyond the Rain album. Is there anything that you've been working on since then? Yeah, we've had um, some a couple of major stumbling things. Um, we had a really bad house fire two years ago, and our recording studio was destroyed. Oh wow! <laughs> Here in the house, among other things. So. We had to move into a rental house that the insurance company paid for, and that threw everything. And uh, all of our all of our uh, tracks were destroyed um, that we're working on the new album. And it took a year and a half for the house 
to the insurance, all everything to get figured out, and for the contractors to uh, they basically knocked the house back down to the uh, the skeleton of the the support beams and stuff, and basically rebuilt about eighty percent of the house. Oh, wow. So we finally moved back into the house uh, a couple of months ago, and we're rebuilding the studio right now. And uh, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that it's been five years since the last record came out. I've got two albums worth of material that I've written, <laughs> and I sit every night on the couch out here writing material, but we're in the process of putting the studio back together right now. I'd like to have uh, a fourth album out by the end of the year is my goal Okay. And this dovetails into something else which you may or may not know about. But I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease last year. Oh, no. Not aware of that. Yeah. So I'm dealing with the same thing that Glenn Tipton is battling. Yeah. So my my time is running out in mm. terms of how long I'm going to be able to keep playing. So it really means a lot to me to be able to get this final Wildstar album out. And then I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to retire out. I'll keep playing as long as I can. I just don't think I can go through another album of it's going to take a lot for me to be able to get through this final album. And I just don't think I'll, I'll probably be able to do it again. Um, what I'd like to be able to do is keep writing music um, and maybe release singles with London. And, and, and it may not be, I may not be able to play everything. I, I'll, I'm smart enough to know that if I can't do it, I'll bring somebody else in. So I, I want to try to get through this last Wildstar album, mm -hmm. be our fourth and final one, and then maybe um, do some stuff where we collaborate with other people. Maybe I'll just play bass. Maybe I'll just play rhythm guitar. I talked to Vinnie Moore about maybe helping me out. I talked to David Chastain about maybe helping me out, um, where it would be more of, uh, of a collaboration of people. And I'll just I'll just do do what I can as as long as I can keep doing it but yeah it uh, it's not a good situation but i'm okay you know i'm yeah. trying to stand positive you sound great yeah. um well the 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 alternative is despair and i've got a lot of positive things going on in my life right now this yeah. is obviously a, a life-changing thing that i'm going through and i don't know how much time i have left because Parkinson's is all over the map. It's like, I basically thought I'll tell you the same thing. I could tell everybody else I could be dead in three years or it could linger on uh, for the rest of my life for like 15, 20, 25 years. I just take every day as it comes and I'm just thankful that every day that I'm get up and wake up with a smile on my face. Cause that's, that's really the only way to live. And I know Glenn Tipton's probably, even though, you know, his career has been, devastated by this disease um i know enough about glenn to know that he's got his chin up and he's uh you know staying positive <clears throat> but there's no guarantees in life and none of us get out of here alive and this is just this is the burden that i, that I have to bear. yeah there are no guarantees but, in life that's for sure very and, true. Uh, yeah. yeah i, I hear I, you brother but i'm okay you know i'm okay with it um now i'm in stage one so it's not so terribly bad uh, my as we speak right now my right hand and my right arm are shaking uh badly probably because i'm a little nervous talking about this because I, I haven't talked a lot about it but um 
I just hope that I can stay positive if if it, the deterioration continues and it gets into stage two, stage three, and it just it's pretty ugly if you look <laughs> look it up online. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm staying positive. I'm staying. I'm cool. I'm I'm okay. Um, I've had a great life, and I have a great life. I have a great wife. I've got a great daughter. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of things I've dreamed about, and I'm going to keep doing them as long as I can and stay positive. That's that's the only way to do it. Yeah, that's yeah. That's I hate you, bro. I've had quite a few uh, uh, curveballs thrown at me in my life too, and and you have to, and and, and like yourself, I, I I think applied to me too. It always seems to get me back into a good mood and in good places. Music. It's always been the one consistent thing that will get me out of you know a bad time in my life. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just, you just never know how life's going to turn out. I mean, look at. I'm I'm 60 now. I'm going to be 61 next month, and it's easy to bitch and complain and whine about things like this when they go wrong. But I just, what just crossed my mind as we were talking about this, I go, look at how many years I've been alive and everything I've done since Carl Albert died tragically in exactly. a car accident. Twenty, almost 27 years now. Uh, or actually 20, yeah, it'll be 27 years this April, I think. And he was cut short at what, 31, 32? 32 years old, yep. Yeah, so it's just important to take each day as a, as a blessing. And you know what the reality of, of it is, Dave? We live in this time now where people like to say, oh, you're only 60. I just turned 63, so I'm like two years older than you. People yeah. say to me, oh, you know, you're young. And you know, in reality, we're not. Like if you look at like our grandfathers at 60, you were in your 60s. You were an old man. I mean, you pretty much were on yes. your last days. So I, I look at it like due to modern medicine and, and you know, better taking care of yourself. We're kind of on borrowed time because just two generations ago, if you were in your 60s, you know, there aren't that many people that lived into their 70s in in, in the early 20s no, and 30s. You're, you're right. You're right. And uh, it probably wasn't. I don't know. I don't know. The, I'm not sure about the history of the treatment of Parkinson's, but it probably wasn't that long ago that Parkinson's was a death sentence. That's right. And um, no longer and is. That they, now they've got medication, and they've even got a brain implant uh, operation that they can do now in extreme cases. But uh, you look at AIDS. I mean, AIDS was at one time was a death sentence, and right. it no longer is. It no longer is uh, at all. Right. Yeah. So it's amazing what medicine can do. But yeah, there are there are times when I you know when I think I do the math and I go, Good God, twenty years ago I was I was forty one. 20 years from now, I'm going to be 81. That's just scary. <laughs> right. No, I know. Believe me. I'm two years older than you. You're not. <laughs> yeah. I'm two, two years more scared than you are. <laughs> but life is, a, life is a journey. I've had a lot of ups and downs. I've had a lot of good things and bad things happen. But um, I think more good things and bad things. And I, this whole situation with the Parkinson's diagnosis is not going to be now, if it's it's I I always tell people it's a battle like it's a war I can't win but I'm does I'm gonna keep fighting till my last breath so exactly I, I just try to stay as positive as I can and hey man you you lived a life that we we all envy you you were you were a, a rock star in, in a in a great band in a great era you saw the world you you made videos you made records for major albums. Everybody, whether you're a fan or or an aspiring musician, wishes that they had that resume. And now you have a good woman, and uh, you're in a good place. So there's plenty yeah. of positive things in your life. 
Yeah, there's there's the old saying, no matter how bad things are, there's always somebody who's got things worse. There's no question about it. No question about it. So there's no no sniveling from my end. I'm 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 full speed ahead, onward and upward, and uh, just going to try to get this last record done and then assess the situation and take it from there. Cool. We'll we'll be looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, Dave, I I mean, Tom and I, we really appreciate this talk today. We appreciate you opening up and uh, you know talking about vicious rumors and of course about wild star and uh and your life situation just you know appreciate you opening up about that and uh best cool. of luck to you um that's for sure hey, i appreciate you guys calling me and uh, enjoyed the conversation we'll this was a great interview time. i mean we've done a whole bunch of interviews i gotta honestly say this was my aside from your band was one of my favorite bands but it was a, a great interview and uh i, I really want to thank you for your time and uh we'll keep in touch i i don't know if you remember but i used to i used to bother you on instant message a couple of years ago about vicious rumors all all the time and, yeah, uh, I think I remember. Yeah, I remember I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so we, we will keep in touch, and uh, it's great right, talking to you, Dave. Guys. Excellent. Be well, Dave. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.